This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mike Sidla, the Division Director for Information Management Resources at Naval Sea System Commands in Industrial Ops. Mike, welcome to the program. Good morning. I really appreciate you taking the time. This is a little bit different of an Ask the CIO. Obviously, you don't have the quote-unquote title of CIO, but so much of what you guys are doing involves technology, and and that's why I wanted to sit down here and talk to you. Let me start with the basics. Uh, In case people aren't really familiar with what Naval Sea Systems Command does, and especially the industrial ops part, give us just a sense of of your your broad mission, and then how do you support that broad NAVC mission? ComNAVC, Naval Sea Systems Command, is one of the five system commands in the United States Navy. That means we are the ones that buy stuff. In particular, that's related to ships. So we are responsible for the planning of the purchase, planning of buying ships, buying the ships, maintaining the ships, and then disposing of them eventually. So that's very much what we do. It's about $30 billion annual command. So $30 billion kind of flows through the, the process at any given time. And then within our organization, the industrial ops, we are focused on sustaining those assets, in particular submarines, carriers, and surface fleets. And that's about $9.7 billion uh, annual budget that we're responsible for. And then within that, that operation, which is worldwide, 24-7, uh, my my code and my responsibility with my team is sustaining and sustaining the enterprise-wide systems, bringing new digital options to the table, and then cybersecurity. So I always like to say that naval maintenance, just like the British Empire, never sleeps. So wherever the sun rises, we're doing maintenance somewhere on some ship. And that's uh, pretty incredible when you talk about not just budget, but submarines, carriers, surface fleet. That, I'm not sure what's left out of, <laughs> of, that, of that list that you guys don't deal with. But um, yeah. when you talk about an, an industrial ops means what? I mean, just maybe put a finer point on it just in case the audience isn't, isn't yeah. familiar with that term. When we, when we talk about industrial ops, just I'm going to use, a, uh, use your car as an analogy here. So we have three levels. We have operational level, we have intermediate level, and we have depot level. So operational level is if you took your car home, uh, changed the oil, maybe replaced the light bulb or something like that. That's the first step. And that's usually done by the sailors and the fleet. The second steps, the intermediate and depot, which is our, our RMCs, regional maintenance centers, our ship repair facility in Japan, or our naval shipyards, are kind of a little bit more complex. So the I, intermediate level means you've actually taken your car to the dealer, right? And they're doing normal maintenance on it, something you wouldn't do at home, at home. replace the brakes, uh, change the filters, those kind of things that bring it back up. Then the naval shipyards, which are our depots, they're doing a restoration and modernization on your car. So they are actually pulling the engine out, fixing the engine, doing any body work that needs to occur in, that, in those actions. So that's what we're, do, we're focused on. So my organization is mainly focused on the intermediate and the depot level. So lots of complex work going on. So at, right now at the Naval Shipyards, we have about 45,000 employees daily working on carriers and submarines, getting them up and ready to go for the nation. And it's probably amazing how technology now plays into this effort every single day. A lot of people may not think about, well, well you're welding or you're, you're fixing, or as, and we'll use your car analogy, changing the brakes or up or tuning the engine that's all now a technology piece and then that's where your office i'm sure comes in to yep. help out with with that technology side make sure the tools the network all those pieces and parts are working well yeah so it is a finely orchestrated dance so carrier availability that's when we actually have the carrier come into dry dock 
and we, we start working on it, has about 10,000 employees coming in and out on them at any given time. So we got to make sure that, that they're at the right place with the right tools, doing the right work, and it's been certified. Also, it can get out of that dry dock and back to the fleet as soon as we can. So it is technically impossible not to do this with the IT tools that we bring to the, the scheduling tools, the planning tools, the material tools that we bring to the, the table. And so our goal as in the part of this organization is not only just to keep what, what we're doing, but to increase the productivity of those that workforce incredibly. If we can increase it by 20 to 30%, that's a big savings, but also more importantly, it gets those those aircraft carriers or submarines back to the Navy to be deployed. And that's one of the things that we're always focused on, increasing productivity and sustaining what we have. And as you can see, we never have enough carriers or submarines in places to support the Navy mission or in particular protect the world. I know based on you know previous reporting, there's always a push in Congress for, you know, we need a fleet of this size. We need 350 ships. Let's talk a little bit about your office too. How many federal employees do you have, uniformed men and women, contractors, yes. civilians, and then w- roughly what's your IT budget for 2020? We're going to break this into two parts. So there's the centralized central locate, uh, organization that I'm directly responsible for. Then I have some field activities and both of them together are what we need to uh, execute this Navy, the maintenance mission. Within my office, it's about $130 million annually that I get for IT. I have about 65 government uh, employees that are working for me across the country in the IT program management roles, uh, product delivery, acquisition, and then about 400 contractors doing sustainment operations and development. So it's a pretty robust staff. Uh, it's almost like a mid-size, smaller software development organization. And then when I go into the field activities at Naval Shipyards and RMCs, we have about another $100 million worth of uh, just regular maintenance, and that's everything from sysadmins to cybersecurity professionals to, um, to just the help desk folks at the field, right? And so and we're looking at a mix of about, we have a mix of military and civilians in there, and about 400 to 500 people in total, so both contractors and government and military. And it really is one team. Um, because we've realized right now we can't treat them as contractors or government or military. It's just one team. This the enterprise solution has to be in place. I'm sure people don't realize the breadth and depth of this effort. When you talk about the IT piece, you're talking about almost, and, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, maybe close to 1,000 people doing this work, budget of over $230 million, and encompasses the range of activities, as you said, program project management, cybersecurity systems administration, all those pieces and parts. And, and your role is to do what specifically? You, you manage all of this or do you have a, a piece of it that you manage? Help me understand. So, your uh, so I have two, two roles. So I have the, I am directly the program manager for development and maintaining the enterprise systems that we have. I oversee the policy for uh, cybersecurity within the organizations below me. Um, and then I'm also leading the digital uh, transformational efforts. So those are the three key components that we're having. And then, of course, all everything that comes along with it, including acquisition and coordination with other members within the Navy and DOD when it comes to networks and cybersecurity and ten, like tensely in those folks. So pretty much, it, it, even though it's not a CIO per se, um, it is if in the private sector, you'll be looking at CIO style organization. I was going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> everything you just mentioned says, hey, you are the CIO of, of, of this organization. I don't want to uh, yeah. upset anyone, so, uh, but uh, it's, it's a wide-ranging job for sure. One of the things that you brought up, and I think this is a, maybe the, the, really the heart of the conversation we're going to get into uh, during the show today, 
is you have so many pieces and parts going ongoing. You have submarines and ships and carriers and surface fleets that really need to be maintained, upgraded, changed out, and get ready mm-hmm. to get back you know, on the water to, to in, in, in the Navy's ships. And you have 45,000 employees working on all this effort. And then the coronavirus hits. And you have to socially distance and, you know, you really can't work from home if you're fixing parts of a ship or kind of upgrading technology systems that's on a ship. So walk me through how has your office continued to kind of deal with this challenge and while you also meet your mission of the the pandemic? For the shipyards, and I'm going to focus on the shipyards, because of the nature of the work, they are actually had to go back into the play, into the yards. And we did a lot of social distancing, and I'm not going to go into a lot of details because it, it's not my area of expertise, but uh, the shipyard commanders and the shipyard employees, we worked together to socially distance. We started doing some in- interesting ideas. We took the folks that were what we call in the overhead positions, and we were able to let them start teleworking for the first time in many, many ways. In many ways, the coronavirus kind of exercised some opportunities that we've never explored before. Uh, before, it was always everyone had to be next to each other. Then we started realizing we have collaboration tools out there. We can start working our engineering stuff offline, uh, bringing, the, bringing our laptops home, uh, working through a series of collaborate, software collaborations tools out there. Meanwhile, the folks at the waterfront folks were actually back into the, uh, on the shipyards, uh, working those, those, that mission, uh, even though we were facing the coronavirus threat. And so they've done a really good job of isolating, protecting the workforce, but also, more importantly, getting the ships out on time. And that's really where our mission, we're very mission focused. So as we go forward, it was interesting to watch what happened. A lot of things that we said we'd never do, we realized we could do. And we're now embracing that new change in technology, it's particularly the remote operations. It was something that I didn't think we'd ever, the mindset would ever would change because a lot of folks are like, I can't guarantee people are working unless I see them. Now that we've kind of brought these collaboration tools and the laptops and the mobility to the factor, uh, a lot more ideas are popping up of, hey, we can go do this. We can do more distance support. We can actually do that. But at the end of the day, uh, the folks that were on the waterfront, the mechanics, they did come back in and we were still meeting that mission. And so we just did what we had to do, even though, though it was off hours, maybe at times. What about your office specifically, since you're running the IT side of this, yeah. you're ensuring the, as you mentioned, the program manager to maintain systems, oversee cyber policy, the whole digital transformation. Was all of that also moved, you know, remotely or did you have to do some, some systems, some things had to be maintained on premise and with people in, in person? Two things happened. So we actually, uh, I was very impressed with my team. A lot of like our operation center and our software development was we sent people home and we had our virtual desktops and we had uh, those capabilities up and running within uh, 24 hours. We used the managed service to get that, that action going. Uh, there was a couple people that had to come in and actually reboot servers and stuff, but most of the stuff we were able to start moving remotely. And so we were more and more um, moving similar to what the private sector has done in the past. Your sister, sysadmin, through secure means, was able to access the servers, make sure they were up and running. Those tools that we were we had purchased and kind of been playing with for a time, we were able to engage with and get stuff moving. So from the, my organization's standpoint, we moved very rapidly. We, we were about 48 hours from, hey, we're now on the office to back in, where everyone's working at home or remotely, and to be almost a full up round again, which was really impressive. And it was a lot of the procurement tools we had purchased, but we're playing with, we realized, okay, it's time to move forward. And um, one thing I will tell you, we, we, we within the Naval 
shipyard community and the maintenance community was very resilient. And so we've had these plans in the past. We just had to go exercise them. And so that was one of the things that's really driven us to be successful even now. All right, that's a great segue to take a quick break and we can come back. We can talk about that resiliency piece. My guest today is Mike Sidla, the Division Director for Information Management Resources at the Naval Sea System Command's Industrial Ops. I'm Jason Miller. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. My guest today is Mike Sidla, the Division Director for Information Management Resources at the Naval Sea System Command's Industrial Ops. Mike, before break, we started the conversation about how the Naval Sea Systems Command's Industrial Ops is surviving, if you will, during the pandemic emergency. One of the last things you mentioned was really the resiliency piece. And I think that's that's a really key place I want to start because we hear often agencies and organizations talk about operational resiliency. How can we keep going? From a technology mm-hmm. perspective and where you sit in, in your role, how did you guys help the, the NAVC really continue to meet its mission when it came to technology? You mentioned uh, getting up in about 48 hours, but what other things have you had to do to ensure this resiliency over the last few months? One of the key elements for us and the, uh, at the, for the broader organization that we support here, because I, like I said, mentioned before, it's 24-7. We've been working closely with our partners in the NAVWAR organization, POEIS, and NMCI in particular, expanding the VPN capability. That was one of the things that really was a shortfall us. And they did an outstanding job of expanding the, the ability to VPN into secure networks. Um, that was one of the first things. It seems like a, a no-brainer, but realizing that we were never really geared for the amount of teleworking we were doing, that was the first action we were doing. The second one was really getting, I, and, I, and it seems somewhat embarrassing at times, to actually getting the folks to get their laptops and the desktops off the yards into where they needed to be. And then finally is the, like using some of the cloud collaboration tools that we had played with before, but we hadn't really exposed ourselves to. There were a lot of organizations that said, yeah, when, it's interesting to have a cloud collaboration tool set, and I'm not going to give anyone a commercial for it, but using those tools really started opening our eyes. So that passing that information back and forth, the simple things were really critical for us. In fact, just even starting using web cameras and for unsecure conversations and looking people in the eye was the other thing that was really helped the organization and culture in particular that people weren't isolated during this time. It's interesting you bring up the whole webcam, and, and it's one thing that I think we've all gotten used to is you don't need to wear a suit and tie anymore, or you don't need to be dressed up, but you still can't look sloppy, <laughs> at least from the, the kind of midsection up here. And uh, I think that's been that's been a big adjustment for so many people. Uh, when you talk about the VPN piece, let's maybe start there. Um, you had capabilities in place, but you had to go from you know, 20% telework, 5% telework, what was the percentages to now, you know, 90, 95% telework? And how did you make sure your VPN could handle that surge? It was very much of an ad hoc telework. So we were probably at about 15%. At the Naval shipyards themselves, we were probably in the low one to two to 3% thing. And we've spun up to about 40 to 50% of the, of the workforce kind of teleworking on some kind of basis. Um, so for particular for us, working with 205, which is the NMCI program office, it was getting those requirements up and they were standing up additional capabilities across the nation so we can VPN. So they, they have expanded rapidly from, I'm just going to say a rough number, about 60,000 access points to well over 100 that really kind of fit for the entire Navy. So that's really the key element for us there. And let me take it down another level because you, you mentioned that your office is supporting 
the, the workers in the shipyard, the workers who are repairing and upgrading ships. And could that support, you said, could that be done remotely or did you have, have to have some people in the office and so, was, was yeah. there a resiliency piece there? Yeah. So um, for, we had some of the action could be redone rem- remotely. And that was one of the biggest change for us too, was making sure we had the right cy- uh, cybersecurity tools to access uh, securely those networks. So that, that was occurring. Um, but unfortunately, because some of the nature of the work, we actually had folks coming into the office socially isolating and wearing the mask and washing their hands uh, just because of the nature of the production environment. Among your IT modernization priorities are new innovation teams. Describe how they work. At each of the four shipyards, we've been designated little innovation teams. And so what their charters are, are, hey, don't do business as normal, right? How can we increase productivity? Um, So those teams are looking at a wide range of technologies and both in the physical space and the digital space too. Um, things that we're really kind of focusing on is how do we improve training? Uh, right now, before a ship comes in, we actually do a physical mock-up so the folks can walk around and see what the action is going. So we started looking at, hey, what's that mean if we do a digital realm, right? Using commercial off-the-shelf technology, what if we take the digital twin of the ship and actually do have the employees walk around so they can actually see what the, the submarine looks like, be in it, even though it hasn't shown up yet? work the packages, especially when we, it's, a, it's a big advantage when we have the less experienced folks coming into a submarine for the first time, they're doing maintenance. So now they know, they know what's going on. When we talk about the safe space, we're really talking about working to use Navy approved paths so they can actually bring technology in, play with it, see if it makes sense or doesn't make sense. So we've talked about a little bit about the 3D, uh, entering the 3D animation world, kind of that. We're starting to look at other technologies similar to um, using robots, using uh, automated kitting, those kind of technologies that we haven't used before. And then we'll talk a little bit in the future, potentially of it using AI and machine learning. Um, lots of capabilities that we haven't really touched there that we're focusing on in the next couple of years. Those are the safe space we're talking. And so there's two parts of that too. There's, it's always the, hey, this is a great new, cool new technology, but we're also kind of focusing, the second question is, which part of the organization is going to sustain it? Because we really don't want to just go have a new technology that's not really embedded into the culture. And that's the second part of the, the what we're talking with the innovation crowd. They, they come and identify the technology, they play with it, say, yeah, this makes sense. Then we actually try to figure out how we're going to make sure it's sustained long-term and how it's fitted into our business process. So those are the kind of things we're working on at locally at the area. And then all the technology that goes along supporting that, because everything today has some kind of IT tail to it. And we really want to make sure it's cyber safe or it's and the technology is easily maintained as we move forward. Those are the kind of things that we're focusing on a day-to-day basis and working that. And so the other interesting thing I've discovered is it's not the traditional IT crowd that's really pushing forward on this innovation stuff. It's engineers, folks that usually have, are actually working in, on the ships that come in and said, hey, can we do this? I think I saw, I Googled something online and saw there's a technology, can we bring this in? And those are the things we're working on on a constant basis too. And that's usually important because you're listening to the users. I mean, we, we love to talk about user-centered design and agile development and all those key buzzwords, but having that place where the users can say to your technology experts, I need something to help me with this problem or help me solve this challenge. I think that is, is key. And, and it sounds to me like it's not something you all always did for, for decades and decades. This is something that maybe popped up as we all, from a technology perspective, started to focus on the user community more. 
Yeah, and that, that that's key. It, it, these are there is always those rebels out there. You, you, uh, being in in whatever command information officer you are, you always have the folks pushing the boundaries. So it's something falling on your network. You're like, oh my god, where did that come from? But trying to get them an opportunity and, and harness that energy has been really important for the naval shipyards and the rest of the community of driving us forward. That kind of action is just important because, like I said, the product we talked about. We only have the limited number of ships and the, any way we can figure out how to make anyone more productive and get those ships and submarines back out faster to the fleet is key for us. That's really the mission that we're focused on. How can we get product assets back to the fleet so they can go do their mission? And I think that's one of the critical assets we do. And the only way we're going to be successful is embracing more technology to help us speed up. Speaking of embracing more technology among your IT modernization strategy, these 28 core apps and modernizing them, have you all been mm-hmm. through a app rationalization process? Do you know kind of a priority list? Walk me through how you're going about that, that modernization. We've been through the traditional application rationalization idea. One of the things that we've identified those core apps, instead of talking just like IT, we're really, I focus my team and the end users on what is the output we need. So we understand that the core area that we need a tool that does planning, right? So we've looked at the tools that we have out there and we said, okay, does it do what it needs to do today? What would be better? And we started focusing on that technology, bringing the end users in to say, hey, what's the next step? The vision really is, if we do this right, is and moving away from that traditional IT project manager into what you see in the private sector of a digital product manager, right? So they are actually doing the market surveys, in this case, our end users, on a constant basis, understanding what they really need to do their job, and then are already anticipating what the next technology change is for those those core functions that we're doing, the planning, the ordering of material, the scheduling of human uh, human, uh, resources, making sure the training's in place, all those kind of things that we're kind of focusing away. Moving away from that traditional IT project manager into more of a digital product product manager that has ownership over that capability that we want to bring to the table. And that's all throughout the thing. And one of the other things that I, I want to mention is that in the cultural shift that we're doing, because buying IT, buying just IT is kind of the easy part. We can buy servers, we can buy software stuff. It's actually working with the customer. So we, you mentioned agile earlier and human-centric design. Those are great buzzwords when they're just within the IT community. They're really successful, and I've discovered, is when we bring the end user in and they have the same acronym. So we're teaching them, we're doing an agile development project, they're fully engaged on it. They, they, it's not just, hey, here's my requirements, and walk away. That's one of the biggest challenges I've, I've had is changing the culture of how we do development and procure IT. And that's really, I'm kind of excited about seeing because it's starting to grow. The idea of even agile outside the IT realm is starting to grow, human-centric design, all those kind of ideas are kind of boiling up and we're starting to see it, not just from our internally to the IT community, but uh, actually operators and users too. The one thing about the working with the customers, getting them to understand you can't just throw the requirements or the transom and hope for the best. They have to understand that if they're not part of it, then the likelihood of success diminishes and, and getting them to understand that is sometimes key. And one way to do that, I think, is about data. And I think that is an important mm-hmm. segue because when we talk about protecting data, driving data to make better decisions, walk me through mm-hmm. some of those areas that you're able to bring to the 
key leadership, but also to the folks in the shipyard to say, hey, we need this tool. We have to order this type of part or, or data is really driving the experience of, of improving the resiliency. This is really key for us to operate. Uh, the next step for us to be a, a top world-class organization and not set on our laurels, because we've been very, very successful with our mission, is actually harnessing the information that we gather. And like every organ- Navy military organization, we gather a lot of data, but then it sits there and we're not really using it. So what we've really kind of done over the last year and a half, which it's been a key teaming effort, not only with my, my team, but with the operators themselves, is we recognize we don't have any data. Our data literacy was very bad, and we didn't really have data analysts. And you can go buy those capabilities, but you know the data science, the data science guys, they're in high demand. There's more jobs out there for those folks than we can ever afford to pay. So what we've done in the last 14 months even though it's kind of been, it's actually set up our working with a local university in the the Tidewater area to set up a master's level certificate program for our folks to teach them what data analytics really mean and walk them all the way from the simple analytics process to predictive, predictive analysis, which is our key at that time, because I really want to make sure that people are recognizing is how to use data. So people ask me, we're going to, I know we're going to be successful in this area. It's when I don't see a PowerPoint brief being used for a decision tool with a senior leader. I've said to my Vice Admiral Moore, who is soon to be retiring from the command of NAVC, that I know I'll be successful. We never bring you another PowerPoint again. So as from an IT perspective, my goal is to kill PowerPoints when it comes to decisions. And get there, that it's critical for us to have a, a workforce that understands the power of data and how they can access it. So as we keep them and get them trained up on this and the demand for folks trying to get into these classes is amazing. We've done well over 140 folks already and we have a waiting list of probably another 100 coming down the pipe. Is we're also investing through a series of modern tools, uh, cost technology out there to help look into the data. And like we had a conversation a little bit earlier before of what the longer Navy approach was. And so the Navy is looking at figuring out how we have a, ID, a central IDE and using that tool across the board, not just for what we do in the maintenance community, but also in the logis- supply community and everywhere else to identify those key opportunities for decisions. All right, Mike, there's plenty to unpack there when we talk about data. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Mike Sidla, the Division Director for Information Management Resources at the Naval Sea System Commands Industrial Ops. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mike Sidla, the Division Director for Information Management Resources at the Naval Sea System Command's Industrial Ops. Mike, before break, we're talking a lot about data, and you mentioned a way to get more data scientists, and I think this is a fascinating opportunity that you're offering to the folks in in, in NAVC to really get trained up to understand what a data analyst has to do, how to make better decisions using data. Let's talk about that workforce piece because that's one of the biggest challenges I think I hear from CIOs all the time. How do you ensure that your workforce has the right skill sets? So talk to me more about how you're going about that. I, I mentioned how we've, we partner with the university to do the data analyst uh, um, development, and that's been very successful. So we're looking right now how we can mirror that and actually create product manager, digital folks, the wor- folks that work in the digital community. If you look at the experience that you kind of need, you kind of usually have in the undergrad, you're either either 
a hard STEM kind of person or an economics major. And then the second step is you're usually getting MBA uh, to understand how you want to be a professional CIO or leader in the digital realm. So what we're looking at now when it comes to that, those digital skill sets is we're always going to have the basic acquisition 101 stuff that's kind of the DEWIA that the government's kind of grow, uh, grown up on. But really what I'm focusing on now with my team is can we identify those skills that we need to know for someone to be successful? So we talked a little bit about agile development, agile. So what, so if I have a project lead, how do I make sure that he or she goes to the class, they understand what agile means, they eventually work their way up the, the team to become a scrum master, and maybe they're working on second step of, hey, what's human-centric design mean for me, and those kind of actions. So we're creating, we're going to create a series of classes and organizations and experiences that we can move anyone through the pipeline. So my goal is, as we recruit someone out of college or be a four-year or two-year degree, or corporate, or just actually someone that has the skill set that want to be retrained, that we can walk them through this process and actually give them the experience and the training to actually be successful. Uh, it's one of the things I think we do not do well within the Department of Defense. We put people in charge of IT that really have never had IT experience, and that's really why I want to grow. So working on those kind of process of, hey, let's identify what's the best best of breed when it comes to educational experiences, number two, and then what experiences they have. Um, when can we start them as a small, lead a small project team to work their way up to an enterprise-wide level so they are successful? I know having two kids in college, <laughs> the challenge of education is, is both the cost, but also the time and then add the pandemic on top of it. Are you able to kind of find that right balance yet? Or are you worried about overtaxing your workforce because, hey, we want you to work and go to school or at least, you know, you have to, something has to give here? One of the things I'm really trying to focus on is not overburdening the workforce. So we're trying to work on, we haven't figured this out yet, but one of the things we're trying to achieve here is having enough capability that we can take people offline so they can actually learn these, these skill sets. Committing, I think one important to have a solid, strong organization is actually that commitment to improving people because they will go out of their way to do the extra mile for you if you show that you you embrace what they're doing and making it successful. So do I have the silver bullet to the, the question? No, I don't. And we're going to struggle through that, I think, for a couple, couple of years. But we're going to get there. And I think it's going to help us attract a far better quality of individual that wants to join the team if we can give them these, these capabilities and opportunities. And what you've seen so far with the data analytics effort is really impressive. I mean, you said 140 people through the class, another 100 on the waiting list. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a true sign that people see the value and they see where the future is going. Give me a sense of the new training that you're setting up. Is, is where are you with that? Is it still a little ways away? Unfortunately, my team tells me I'm a little too aggressive. So I've asked them, I told them that I needed to do it two weeks ago. That's the statement of when when this due it was two, due two weeks ago. Um, we're actually thinking uh, we're going to start looking and we've identified already started the skeleton of the pipeline training sessions already. So we're, we're closer than we think. And one of the things I've discovered is we'll do it. We'll, we'll run a pilot group through it first, and then we'll go back and really do a self-assessment. Did this make sense or not? And we'll probably tweak the criteria every every six months until we, we find who we're comfortable with. And I'm working with Admiral Wynn and the stand-up of the new NAPSI cyber and digital organiz engineering organization to do to help 
model our uh, efforts with what they are doing too. Excellent. I think that's a great approach to understand. Let's, let's take it kind of as a proof of concept in many ways and prove upon it as you go along. Mike, I really appreciate your time. One last question before I let you go. A lot of vendors do listen to my program. You are not the usual quote unquote CIO who goes out and gets on the speaking circuit. So you may get a, a lot of vendors may be attracted to come see you. What should they know about working with you? You're located in the DC area, so that makes things even more challenging sometimes for vendors and, and wanting to come talk to you. H- help me understand how they should work with your office. One of the things that is always key to me, because I do get a lot of vendors coming in, uh, pitching, doing the sales pitch. Two things I always ask them to do. When you're coming in, actually fo- be focused on what my mission needs are. Uh, do a little bit of research. Um, too many times I've had folks come in and do the generic pitch and my time's valuable and I really would, and I know your time's valuable too. So for both of us, let's be focused on what the mission outcome, put yourself in my shoe. That's one, that's number one. Number two is um, I mentioned earlier, um, one of the things that I am very much focused on right now is trying to find players that have not been traditionally part of the Navy or DOD uh, market space. Um, those OTAs, the other transactional actions that we move forward, and you'll see, be seeing more of those coming out of both the Navy and my, and my organization in particular, is looking for new technologies that we haven't used before. We talked a little bit about RPAs. We talked a little bit about machine learning, those technologies out there. And the final one that I've always said, because when the vendors come in, because I've had spent a little bit of quality time on the private sector, is there is no incumbent in my mind. Competition is a great thing. So don't feel, if you're doing a pro- something with me, that there's someone already pre-selected, because that's not the truth. We are very much focused on open competition. Mike, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really do appreciate your time. So let me thank my guest, Mike Sidla, the Division Director for Information Management Resources at the Naval Sea System Commands Industrial Ops. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having me. We have to take a break. When we come back, you'll hear from Navy CIO Aaron Weiss. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. For news on the federal pay raise. To learn how other agencies handle IT modernization. To see how Congress funds my agency. For changes to my TRICARE benefits. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this segment of the show, I play an excerpt of an interview my colleague, Jory Heckman, had with Navy CIO Aaron Weiss. How did the coronavirus pandemic uh, impact the Navy's IT modernization efforts uh, just at a high level? I think the key word there is acceleration. We already knew that we had a modernization task ahead of us, you know, and that came through as part of the information superiority vision that, you know, we, we worked through last year and, you know, had, had finally been signed out, I think, at the end of January, um, so timely. Uh, so we knew that modernization was ahead of us, and we had already identified, you know, kind of some some key legs to the stool of modernization, and they were they were around networks, and the drive to cloud, and uh, you know, identity services. And so that knew we had it coming. What we didn't realize is that we were going to dramatically accelerate all of that in a matter of weeks. And so it's it's really just lit a fire under us and and kind of you know what we're doing now is now that we're kind of on the backside of the initial telework uh, push is now looking at how do we continue to drive this forward 
and turn it into something that we can sustain going forward. How did cloud services become more essential during the, uh, during the pandemic to drive mission outcomes? Very early in the crisis, we actually had a, a, a meeting with my combined team, Navy Marine Corps, and the Department of Navy teams, and we strategized at a high level how we want to go at the, the, the COVID crisis. And we kind of made a, a two-part plan. We had plan A, which was all the stuff that we would do that would fall broadly under the heading of more of what we're already doing, more bandwidth, more VPN concentrators, right? More Outlook web access, more, you know, just more of what we already have. And that was plan A. And then plan B was what are the things that we need to do differently? And they really revolved around, you know, deploying, you know, highly capable collaboration tools, such as the stuff that we see in Office 365. And specifically, and, and as it very rapidly evolved, got into deploying the DoD commercial virtual remote or CVR tool, which was effectively, a, you know, a, a mass deployed Microsoft Teams environment. And we ran plan A and plan B in parallel. So they were not in either or. Uh, we went off under plan A and, you know, we more than quadrupled the size of our telework infrastructure. We went from pre-COVID on any given day, we had about twelve or 13,000 people who would who would telework into, you know, the combined Navy and, and Marine Corps to where we are today. And even today, as we talk, and we kind of almost take it for granted, but on any given day, there's two to 250,000 teleworkers who, who we're supporting right now. And, and that happened by, again, we, we multiplied bandwidth into and out of the Doden N. We, you know, massively increased by factors, you know, VPN, Ability. We ended up building out two new sites, you know, to support all these teleworkers who are coming into the environment. So that was plan A. But plan B, you know, around the deployment of CVR, it was really two parts. The deployment of CVR, and today, again, as we speak, we have about 200,000, give or take, CVR users right now across the Navy and Marine Corps. And then in, in conjunction with CVR, which was kind of a, a big bang, uh, we took an Office 365 pilot that uh, had maybe a had been planned for 10,000 users, and sort of lit the fuse on that. And that now is targeted by the end of this fiscal year. So really, between March and the end of September, that will now have uh, the plan is 160,000 users migrated to that full Office 365 environment. And so obviously, CVR. And Office 365, you know, are built on that cloud, uh, you know, that cloud platform, that cloud infrastructure. And that has really uh, opened the door at more than just deploying a tool to somebody's desktop or somebody's device. It's opened the door to a whole series of follow-on conversations and opportunities around what, what cloud is going to make available to us. But cloud has just been a, a, it, it's been a huge impact. And again, it, it has happened. At speed, uh, I had uh, one of the two-star admiral, a two-star admiral, say to me one day, "You know, sir, you have to understand, we're now doing in weeks what what would have normally taken years, and that's that level of acceleration. Uh, it's been crazy and exciting, and I, but I think, and as horrible as the coronavirus, 
you know, pandemic is and the crisis and, and the, you know, the challenges that the nation faces, I do believe that, you know, we're going to emerge on the other side of this, you know, across the Navy and Marine Corps in a, in a far stronger, far stronger place because of the actions that we're taking now. In a similar vein to all of this, what were some of the biggest lessons learned from the Navy during this pandemic when it comes to technology acquisition? And, you know, on a similar note, lessons learned on tech implementation. This is going to sound like I'm punting your answer, but I'm not. <laughs> because I really did, when, in looking at your question, and I, and I asked some of the team members this type of question. And, and honestly, and, and on reflection, it's really the basics. It has it has stressed the need for tight alignment and communications that are happening in real time, you know, at a leadership level. I mean, it's just communicate, communicate, communicate. You know, you know, we've started new forums uh, that are happening. You know, in, in the beginning they were out on a daily basis, and now they're on two or three times a week basis, where we're bringing together leaders, you know, across the spectrum between the secretariat and kind of echelon one and echelon two CIOs onto common calls, common forums, where we are working through these problems in a real-time nature that we really had never done, you know, whereas previously we would have entrusted the staffing process or the coordination process to get through this stuff. We're just knocking it down in, in real time. And that's allowed, you know, the acquisition activities to move in real time and to respond in real time. You know, the time between the decision of we need to quadruple the telework infrastructure to executing licenses was, you know, to make all that happen, for example, on the acquisition side was near zero, right? It just, it just, it happened in such real time because of that uh, communication. And, um, you know, we were already operating at a, at a pretty um, high functioning level you know, as a unified team across the Navy, Marine Corps, and the Department of Navy. But this has really just amplified that. Uh, it's highlighted the power that that real-time communication can bring and that leadership coordination, that leadership unity of effort. And I think everyone has remarked on, on the effectiveness that's come from that. And, and that's something that we intend to continue for going forward. So even as we move, you know, beyond the pandemic at some point, hopefully soon, that kind of different culture of real-time collaboration, communication, alignment, and unity of effort is something that I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that we carry forward. And I know that that probably feels like a really big round answer to what might have been, uh, you know, specific lesson learned under the banner of acquisition. But this has really just been a, just an absolute clarity and a home run in the execution centered around around the communication that we've done. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt of an interview my colleague Jory Heckman had with Navy CIO Aaron Weiss. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Pop quiz, what can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. 
Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com vision.